In the first meeting, we talked about the question, why Dhamma? Why is it necessary to study and practice Dhamma? The next question is, how Dhamma? Regarding this question, you've received various instructions and advice at the meditation center so that by now you should understand the question, how Dhamma? And so today, in this last meeting, we'll examine the question, how to use Dhamma beneficially? How to make proper use of Dhamma? So please, get these questions in the proper order. Why Dhamma? How Dhamma? And then you will naturally receive benefits from Dhamma. If we wish to use a metaphor, we can compare this with planting a tree. This is something rather important, so please Prepare yourselves for careful listening. The first thing is to find a seed. We begin with a seed, and so we must search for a good seed, a good variety of seed. Then we plant that seed and allow it to germinate let it sprout. And then that plant grows and develops steadily. And so it is transformed from a little round seed into, into a plant, something with the shape of a plant or a tree. And then as it reaches the completion of this transformation, it has flowers and then bears fruit. And then we can reap many advantages and benefits from these flowers and fruit. Now the tree is a metaphor for the mind. The mind is planted and then it sprouts and then is cared for so that it grows and develops until it puts forth flowers and bears fruit. This is the growth of the mind up until the stage where it reaches success and bears fruit. Now all of these stages and modes of growth which we've just mentioned can be called whatever you like, although the most popular term seems to be development. 
development of the mind or of life. In the Pali language, we have a word that basically means development, but only in a particular sense. This word is pawana, pawana. Pawana means specifically development in a good, proper, correct way. It essentially means the development which is correct and reaches the fullness of our humanity. The word development tends to be ambiguous. It means just to have more, to get bigger, to progress. But development in the ordinary sense of the word can be incorrect. It can be very dangerous. But pawana is in the, the meaning of the word pawana, it's never dangerous. It's always fitting and proper. And generally this means to the calming and insight meditation means of developing the mind. Calming and gathering the mind and then looking deeply into the nature of things. The Thai word for development is patana, patana, which sounds pretty close to pawana. The Thai word comes from the Pali word watana, and watana means simply to have more of, to make more of, and it can be can just as easily be wrong, unhealthy, and dangerous similar to the English word progress. You can make progress in the right direction or you can make progress in the wrong direction. You can even end up crazy through progress. But, so this is the ambiguity and danger of the word patana or development in its ordinary sense. But pawana, the spiritual development that we're emphasizing here of, of, of calming the mind and then having insight into the nature of the mind. This can't go wrong. For it to be pawana, it must be right and can't go wrong. So the tree here is a metaphor for the mind or for life. We're talking about the spiritual development of the mind or of life until it's developed to the, its highest potential and bears the highest fruit. The fruit we're talking about here is a kind of fruit that you've never known before. It's much different than the kind of results or benefits that worldly people are getting. In their worldly actions, fueled by their worldly desires, people get certain kinds of benefits. But the, the fruits and benefits we're talking about now are of an entirely different order. 
something that you haven't known before, something that will be quite strange and marvelous for you. When this development, this spiritual development has reached its fulfillment, when this development, and we're sorry that there's no other word, but we have to settle for this ambiguous English word, development. But when development has reached its completion, then life doesn't bite its owner. When our development is incomplete, or when life hasn't been developed, when there's been no spiritual development, or even when the development is going in the wrong direction, such as the kind of development we have in the world today, when there's all kinds of incredible de development, but it's going in the wrong direction, then life will bite its owner. And the more of this wrong development there is, the more that life will bite its owner. Although we need to use this English word development, we need to do something to make it clear that we mean correct, right development. So we'll add the word spiritual. We use the term spiritual to mean the kind of development that is 100% correct. So we're not talking about merely material development or physical development, although to some degree that's included in spiritual development. And we're not talking of some purely mental development either. But we're talking of a holistic and complete, correct development. So we'll use the word spiritual. Now when there is genuine spiritual development of the things that need to be developed, then life will get the best thing that there is to get in life. Up until then, we haven't yet gotten this best thing that there is to get. But through genuine spiritual development, then we get it which is a life without any problem, the life free of dukkha, the life that doesn't bite its owner. If you want to make it short and sweet, we're talking about getting the life that doesn't bite its owner. Now there are two stages to this. The first stage is making it safe, getting rid of the dangers so that life doesn't bite its owner. And then the second stage is receiving the highest possible benefit that there is in life. So we'll begin by talking about this first stage, how to make it so life doesn't bite its owner. A simile that we can use here is 
one catches a wild animal from the forest and then one trains and tames that animal in order to keep it as a pet or to use it for certain kinds of work. Now before we can get any benefits from this animal, first it must be trained and tamed to the point where it no longer bites its owner. If this animal is still biting and clawing its owner, then you can't make much use of it. So the first thing to do is to tame it so that it no longer bites its owner. All the different kinds of animals that people catch, such as monkeys, gibbons, mongooses, wild pigs, whatever. At first, you must be very careful with them because they will bite, and their bites can be very dangerous. But later, they can be trained and tamed until they no longer bite their owners. And especially the animals which are most useful, such as wild elephants, wild ox, wild horses, these animals are the most dangerous to begin with. And so they have to be very carefully trained until eventually they are tamed. Once they are tamed to the degree where they no longer bite their owners, then they can be used to do all kinds of work and they can be of great benefit to us. The life which hasn't been properly developed bites its owner. Without spiritual development, it's inevitable that life will bite its owner. Because we're from before we were born, while we were still in our mother's womb, we lacked correct understanding of things. And since we've been born, we still lack that proper understanding. And so life bites its owner, almost practically from the very start. It bites its owner in the form of the defilement, things which pollute and darken the mind, such as greed, anger, and stupidity. We we divide the, in a general way, we divide the defilements into three main categories. That of lopa, greed, tosa, hatred, and moha, delusion. And these are the different ways that life bites its owner. And this habits, these habits of defilement grow from childhood until by the time we're an adult, they're fully formed. And because there isn't any spiritual development yet, there's just physical development and some basic levels of mental development, the kind we get in school. Because that's all there is, life continues to bite its owner. Until we decide to show some interest in Dhamma and take 
spiritual development seriously. Up until this point, life will just go on fighting its owner. One has to understand this biting very well. If it's positive, it will bite in a positive way. We may like the way it bites us, but it still bites. This is when it's positive. If it's negative, it bites in a negative way. We may not like that, but it's still biting us. And then there are the things that are neither positive nor negative. But they bite us then in the form of stupidity and confusion. We can't figure out whether it's positive or negative. And that bites us in a third way. So this is our problem. The positive, the negative, and that which we can't determine whether it's positive or negative. All three of these bite us. Although we might be prejudiced towards the positive kinds of biting, it bites us just as much or even worse than the other. Nowadays, the world is crazy over the positive. Everyone in the world is worshiping the positive and chasing after the positive in all kinds of different ways. They don't see how the positive bites. They just keep running after it and getting bit over and over again. They might recognize how the negative bites, but they don't pay any attention to the way the positive bites. And so this world is going crazy, going insane with the positive, and not even seeing how it bites, how it destroys. The way, and this will continue going on until the mind is, reaches a level where it's beyond the influence of positiveness and negativeness and then that which we can't tell whether it's positive or negative. As long as we're still under the power of positiveness and negativeness, this biting will continue. But once the mind is above the influence of positiveness, negativeness, and that which is neither positive nor negative, then the biting will cease. Now, you don't have to believe me when I tell you that life bites its owner. And even if a thousand people came and told you this, you don't have to believe any of them. <clears throat> but just look at things for yourself. Look carefully for yourself until you see in yourself and by yourself that the life which is not correct bites its owner. This principle is very important in Buddhism, that one doesn't have to believe anyone else. One can merely listen and then reflect upon and examine the words, the meaning of their words. And then the, the reasoning 
the cause and effect relationship within their words, we can examine that for ourselves. We look at it, and if it's true, we'll know for ourselves without having to take it on anyone else's authority. That the incorrect life, if we live life incorrectly, it bites its owner. This principle is very important in Buddhism. The Buddha himself said, don't just, don't believe something just because the speaker is one's teacher. And this included himself, meaning in essence, don't believe something just because I said it. He emphasized this many times. Only believe something because you see it for yourself. Rather than believing the speaker for whatever reason, one only believes the, the reasoning, the relationship between cause and effect within the words being spoken. When one sees that for oneself, one can believe that. It doesn't depend on the speaker or who's talking. For example, when someone says the defilements are the cause of dukkha, you don't have to believe that person, but just look into the meaning of those words. And you already know very well from your own experience how the defilements stir up all kinds of problems how greed, hatred, fear, worry, create nothing but trouble. So you can see that directly by yourself without having to believe anyone else. This is a very important principle in Buddhism. Please follow it at all times. So we have this principle that must be used at all times. We don't believe the speakers. We don't even believe our teachers. Just because someone is our teacher, guru, or whatever, we don't believe them. We believe only ourselves. We take what has been said and we examine the reasoning of it. We look at it carefully and investigate it deeply. And then through our own experience, through that investigation, then we know what the situation is. And that's what we believe. For our study and practice to be correct, we must apply this principle. Our practice is not correct unless we use this principle of not believing speakers and not believing teachers, but only believing the reasoning in their words which we can directly investigate and experience for ourselves. Now when we say to believe oneself, one still must be very careful, because this can still go wrong. It's possible to believe that thinking one is 
relying only on one's own experience. But if we haven't gone about things correctly, then this belief will be incorrect and can also be dangerous. So we need to believe only in what we realize for ourselves. But at the same time, we can make use of the words and teachings of others because these can give us perspectives to reflect upon our own experience. Often without any input from others, we don't get any new perspectives and stay trapped in our old opinions and habits. Or we don't even know what to think about or what to investigate. So the scriptures, texts, books, the teachers and lectures all can be very beneficial if we study and practice with them accordingly. But always we keep investigating whatever is said or whatever we might think that we discover on our own. We need to investigate till we find the truth within the words. No matter whatever, no matter what someone is saying, don't take it at surface value, but examine it deeply until finding the truth that's being demonstrated or shown by those words. And that truth that we discover is what we can believe. But we must do this very carefully and correctly, otherwise we will go astray. Those of you who believe in God still must follow the same principle. Don't just believe something because God says it or it's written down in a book that is supposed to be the word of God. But believe it because of the, the reasoning, because of the truth within those words. So one doesn't have to believe God, but one believes the truth in what God has said. If we follow this approach, then it will be safe and there won't be any trouble. But if we believe foolishly, blindly, then it will lead to all kinds of misunderstandings and trouble. In Buddhism, we speak of this as being the principle of the Kalama Sutta. The Kalama Sutta is a point, is the recording of a time when the Buddha spoke with the Kalama people about this principle. We recommend that you find this teaching and get to know it well. Now this is a way to distinguish between two kinds of religion. Some religions have dogmatic systems. They have various dogmas which you must accept without any critical analysis, without any investigation. You're expected to believe it straight away. You're even forced 
to believe it. If you belong to that religion, you have no choice. You have to believe its dogmas. Buddhism, however, has no dogmatic system. Everything is open to investigation and critical analysis. You don't have to believe anything. You're only asked to believe that which you have investigated for yourself and found to be true. It's not a matter of believing words, but it's believing the truth contained within the reasoning of the words. So there's nothing dogmatic in this system. Now those of you who have followed a religion which has one of these dogmatic systems, don't worry about it. It's possible to adjust and improve the way you approach this dogmatic system. And then instead of treating it as dogma that you must accept, just use the principle of the Kalama Sutta and believe only in the truth that is contained in the reasoning behind those words. This is the safe approach. This is the approach that is without any danger. So we've used up quite a bit of time to explain and investigate this principle. Let's take a little more time to see how this principle is used in, by investigating the, the reasoning in the words that life which is undeveloped bites its owner. We'll examine some examples, some symptoms of the life that bites its owner. And then you can see for yourself whether this actually happens or not. The first example is love. Love comes in both positive and negative forms, all of which bite their owner. Now with this you don't have to believe us. You all know what love is and can see for yourself how it bites its owner. Now it comes in both negative and positive form. And some people fall for the positive forms of love so strongly that they don't even know what's happening. They fall totally in love and are oblivious. And so they don't know what's happening. And they get so carried away that they worship love. And so they are unable to see how it bites its owner. But you can see for yourself whether the positive and negative forms of love bite its owner or not. The second example is anger. Anger where you want to yell at someone, you want to curse them, you even hit them. This is the positive side of anger. You curse and you hit and it makes you feel good. But although it may start that way, in the end it's incredibly negative. 
beyond negative, beyond reckoning. Anger, too, has its positive and negative side, but it, without exception, bites its owner. Now, this, this isn't something you have to believe the speaker about. There's not one of you here who hasn't been angry before. You've all gotten angry in the past and you know what it is. So look carefully for yourself whether or not anger bites its owner. The third example is hatred, especially hating things that there's no reason to hate. Hating is totally unnecessary. We go and hate things that we needn't hate and it causes us needless annoyance and hassle and trouble. And the, the person we hate doesn't even know a thing. They don't feel a thing. We're the one who bears the full burden of our hatred. So don't believe us about this. All of you know what hatred is. Take a good look at it, how hatred bites its owner. The fourth example is fear. All of us are afraid of things we don't need to fear. Fear always comes from ignorance. We go and fear things, whether there's, there are reasons or not. Because of ignorance, we're afraid. We fear positive things and we fear negative things. And so this despite its owner. Fear is totally unnecessary, but because of it, we can never really rest. We can't find any peace. We're afraid of nuclear war. We're afraid of AIDS. We're afraid of all kinds of things. Even if there's some reason to be afraid, the fear itself is stupid and prevents us from finding any peace. This is the fourth example of how life bites its owner. The fifth example is excitement. Excitement, too, comes from ignorance. There are all kinds of strange and wonderful things that we get all excited about. For example, all the Farang, the foreigners who come to Thailand, they spend most of their money on things which excite them but which have no worth. Most of the things the Farang buy in Thailand are totally worthless, but because they create some excitement, people buy them. Once there was a woman who came and bought a very expensive birdcage. In southern Thailand they raise um, pigeons or doves that that sing and these the birds are very expensive and they make very nice cages this woman saw one of these cages and got all excited and bought it and then took it home and made a lampshade out of it so things which are used in such frivolous and silly ways something becomes quite worthless just because of this excitement People like to be stimulated. 
their curiosity likes to be aroused. We go to all kinds of sporting events. Um, we go to, like to go to shows to be entertained, to be aroused and stimulated. Because we, we like the positiveness of being excited. But excitement, like all the rest, bites its owner. But people are so busy trying to get excited and stimulated, trying to be entertained, that they don't notice how excitement bites its owner. Please be very careful about this. Excitement comes from not knowing. It comes from foolishness and blindness. Because one doesn't know, one is victimized by advertising. Nowadays, advertising and marketing is, are very sophisticated. They have all kinds of tricks to excite us. They stimulate us with all kinds of faith. And then because we're excited, we go and, we go and buy these things. And the more excited we are, the more we'll sacrifice, the more we'll give up. This is, helps us to see how it bites, it bites us. For example, these paintings now that sell for millions of dollars. Why would people pay millions of dollars for a piece of canvas with some paint slapped on it? Because of excitement. People are paying ridiculous prices for these things because of excitement. To not be excited, whether in positive or in negative ways, is much better. Some of you might be thinking that the person who doesn't get excited is crazy, but the person who is excited beyond their control, that's the one who is crazy. It isn't the one who doesn't get excited who is crazy. It's the one who gets overly excited that's crazy. If you get too excited, you can see for yourself how crazy you become. The next example is worry and anxiety about the future, even in the form that we call hope. Hoping regarding the future that we'll get something or have something, this can bite its owner very strongly. When be this bites because it always needs to be kept under control. Hope very easily becomes worry and anxiety. The positive side of it is called hope. The negative side is called worry and anxiety. Don't live with hopes. Just live with hope brings a lot of pain. Instead, with intelligence, see what needs to be done and do it. There's no need to hope for anything. That's all silliness and immaturity. The intelligent person just sees what needs to be done and doesn't. But to live with hope is to be bitten over and over again. Hope is hunger. Hope is nothing but hunger for things we don't have, 
things that we hope will come. So please don't teach your children to live with hopes. If you do, you're just teaching them to get bitten by their by the owner of the hope, because hope bites its owner. To live with hope is is silly, and it's full of confusion. Instead, live with intelligence. We live mindfully and intelligently. There's no need for hope. So this is to be very careful about worry and anxiety about things which haven't come yet. In the start, we may have some hope. We may need some hope. But when we start to see what it is we need, we don't need to hope anymore. At first you may hope, you may have wishes and dreams, but once you see what it is that one really needs, one doesn't need the hope and the dreams anymore. Then with intelligence, with mindfulness and wisdom, one examines how to realize how to attain that what that which we need. And then one lives with mindfulness and intelligence, doing what needs to be done, just steadily doing what needs to be done. And so for the Buddhist, there's no need for hope. Instead, the Buddhist lives with mindfulness, sati, and wisdom, panya, Otherwise, it just bites. All that hope will bite. Why, why bother to live that way? The next one is longing after the past, missing things from the past. This one is a total waste of time. We can long after and miss things in a loving way or in a hateful way but either way bites its owner. We just waste our time. We waste our present life longing after things which are, have gone, which have passed away. For example, sitting around and moping or missing someone who has died just wastes our time. It doesn't do anything of benefit for the person who died. Missing someone doesn't help anyone, and it just wastes our time. So why, why bother? Missing things, longing after the past, this bites its owner. Some people spend all their time longing after the past or missing something which has passed away. They spend so much of their time missing someone or something that they can't do anything now. Their present life becomes worthless because they're unable to do anything, because they put all their time and energy into missing someone or something. This is how it can bite its owner. It makes life meaningless because we're lost in the past, missing something from the past. The next one is envy. 
Envy is a very dangerous thing. It's, and it also comes from foolishness, from stupidity. We ourselves want to be good, want to be great. We don't want others to be as good as us. We want them to fail. We want them to have problems. We want them to be worse than us. We even want them to, to die because of our envy. Envy not only creates a lot of problems on the individual level, but it creates enormous troubles on the social or international level. Nowadays, there's all kinds of envy between economic and political regimes. A certain regime or group has economic and political power, and so other groups envy them. And then there's all kinds of competition and struggle and fighting because of this envy. And we can see all the conflicts and wars in our world because of this envy. On the individual level, it bites very deeply, not wanting others to be better than us, not wanting anybody to be as beautiful as us, as talented, as successful, or whatever. And then on the larger scale, on the social and the international scale, all the envy between, all the stupid envy between different groups and regimes creates tremendous problems, tremendous dangers to the point that it might even destroy the world. Next is jealousy. Um, the inability to share, the inability to be open-minded and generous. There's Generosity is so difficult in the world because of jealousy. People are jealous and possessive because of this possessive jealousy whether it's about money or material goods or whatever, they won't share. People are, find it very difficult to help each other because they're so stingy and possessive. For the most part, people are possessive and jealous about things which there's, they oughtn't to be possessive of. There's no real reason for it. But people spend their time giving so much importance to ridiculous things like money and cars and fashions and jewelry and all kinds of other crazy things. People waste their, their effort and their mental well-being being jealous and possessive like this. And so when there's a need to help people, we have to go to incredible extremes to advertise and encourage people to donate money or food for people who are starving or sick or have suffered some tragedy. It's always so hard to raise this money to help people or for other good causes because people are so ridiculously possessive and jealous about things like the 
for which there's no real reason to be jealous and possessive of. They, they're jealous of the things that don't really matter, the things that aren't important. And so they don't even care about or they don't have any time for the things that really matter. They may not recognize this, but this is what's happening and it's quite sad. It's quite pitiful. And finally we come to a certain kind of jealousy and possessiveness. In Thai there's a special word for it, hung, or we can call it sexual jealousy. This is the particular kind of possessiveness and jealousy we feel toward um, our sexual partner. When we fall in love with somebody, then we develop this particular kind of jealousy. We don't want them to look at another person. If we, we see them talking to another person, then all of a sudden this jealousy comes up and we can get incredibly angry and say all kinds of stupid and cruel things. They may not even do anything wrong, but when jealousy starts to operate, we start to cr create all kinds of fantasies and nightmares that they've cheated on us that they're evil, they're wicked. And there are even cases of people killing each other, of a person killing her or his lover because of this jealousy, and then, and then blowing their own brains out in the end. There are stories in this in great literature and in the newspapers all the time. This is how jealousy bites the heart, especially this sexual jealousy and nowadays that people put so much importance on sex and have such funny ideas about love this kind of jealousy bites even more deeply and more strongly so please be very careful um, when one's lover or spouse goes out then the, the one who's still at home can't even sleep this is this is the problem of jealousy. It keeps us from even being able to sleep at night. Please be very careful about these things. So this sexual jealousy is the last example we'll give today. So we've listed ten examples. This is enough for you to see the point of what we're trying to say. There are, of course, many more examples, but these ten are enough. Look at each of them in order to see how they bite their owner. Love, hatred, or anger, hatred, fear, excitement, um, worry and anxiety about the future, longing after and missing the past, jealous um, envy, and then possessive jealousy, and then the sexual jealousy. You don't have to believe us about any of these. You've experienced all of them. You know all ten of these very well. So reflect upon, take a good look at 
these ten examples and see how they bite, how they bite the heart, how they bite their owner. And once you've seen these things, then the question is how to kill them. How can we kill these ten things so that they no longer bite? How can we how can we kill these nasty beasts which do nothing but torment us, which don't bring us the least happiness and bring us plenty of pain? Let's say in brief that Dhamma is the thing that will wipe out these these monsters. Let's let us stress and insist that it's Dhamma that can eradicate these monsters. So we'll look at these one by one in order to understand this further. If you have studied and practiced enough to see Bhatija Samupada, dependent origination, or Itapajayata, the law of inter dependency. If you've seen these things, then you just recognize that everything happens according to causes and conditions. Everything that arises and then the way things develop are solely happening naturally according to their natural causes and conditions. When we see Itapajayada like this, then there's nothing that can make us fall in love, can make us get angry, nothing can stir up hate, fear, worry, excitement, or any of the rest of them. This is the advantage of Dhamma in the form of dependent origination or interdependency. It can prevent us from falling into love and all those other monsters. The second thing is to have sati, mindfulness. If there's mindfulness, then one can prevent against all these things. If we live with if we live mindfully, then we won't give any opportunities for any of these monsters. If one is successful in one's practice of mindfulness with breathing, then one will have the right kind of mindfulness which is sufficient and quick enough to prevent any of these things from happening. Further, if one is successful in practicing anapanasati, then one will have panya or intuitive wisdom, spiritual understanding. One will have all kinds of this intuitive wisdom. One will know the ins and outs of all these things, will know how they happen, how they develop, and how they can be ended. And so one can deal with all of these things. Because one has this intuitive wisdom, you can eradicate any of these things immediately using the intuitive wisdom which is developed through correctly practicing mindfulness with breathing. If one practices correctly, one will have samadhi or 
samadhi. This is the stability, security and equilibrium of mind. The mind can't be shaken by anything and in turn has the strength, the power necessary to deal with anything that arises. If one has correct and sufficient samadhi, then one will have the strength to deal with whatever arises and nothing will be able to overpower us and create problems. The first tetrad of anapanasati, kayanupatsana, or contemplation of the body, allows us to summon up and gather all our physical energy so that we can have the maximum good health that is possible through practicing the tetrad, which is contemplation of the body, then we will have sufficient physical strength and health. Then the second tetrad, or contemplation of feeling, Vaitanupatsana, allows us to be above the influence of all positive and negative. When there's no, nothing when we see through and are above the influence of all positive and negative, then nothing can excite us ever again. This is the benefits of the second tetrad. The third tetrad is contemplation of mind, Chitanu Bhatsana. This one, one develops the ability to control the mind the mind will no longer be out of control. The mind will be always correct and safe, secure. For example, one can make the mind joyful whenever one requires. One will have the ability to make the mind joyful whenever there's a need to do so. There's no, you don't have to go out to the beach or go to some resort or to some show or any special place to find happiness. Right at home or wherever one is, one can make the mind joyful once one has control of the mind. Then the fourth tread, contemplation of Dhamma, Dhammanupatthana, one realizes the facts of impermanence, of the dukkhaness of impermanent things and the anatata, the selflessness of these things. When one sees the facts of anicata, dukkata, and anatata, then one doesn't attach to anything anymore. Then one is totally freed from the power of positive and negative things when we've seen the impermanence, dukkhaness, ugliness, and selflessness of all these things, then nothing positive or negative can trick us into attachment. Higher than, even higher than that, is to see sunyata, or voidness. To see that all things are void of self, 
void of anything that could belong to self. Seeing sunyata, there's the realization that there is absolutely nothing anywhere that could be a self, that could be taken to be me or mine. And then the mind is free. This is the, the real meaning of freedom, voidness, or sunyata, to see the absolute voidness of everything. And then the mind is free, totally free, because it doesn't cling to or depend on anything. Lastly is the realization and penetration of what we call atamayata. This is the mind that is unshakable, unmovable. It's the mind that's perfectly still or invulnerable. This, we mean this is the mind that cannot be concocted. Nothing can concoct it. Nothing can stir it up or cook it up. It's a mind that is unshakable. It's a mind that is totally normal or natural. There's an old Pali word, pakati, which means natural. But it's the meaning of natural that is totally opposite to what most people think natural means. Or normal. People think that normal is the way everybody behaves. But that's still what people are doing is very abnormal and unnatural from the perspective of peace. But in terms of the Buddha understanding, there's a normalcy and naturalness. And the mind that is totally grounded and centered in normalcy and naturalness, this is the mind that has a dhammayata. Nothing can touch it. Nothing, nothing can affect it. Nothing can, can shake it or move it. This is the mind with a dhammayata. All the pairs of opposites, positive and negative, good and evil, right and wrong, male and female, beautiful and ugly, happy and sad. None of these pairs of opposites can touch or affect the mind of Adamayada. It's above the power and influence of all these things. It's above, it's totally beyond anything positive or negative. This is what we call Adamayada. This is the highest equilibrium, the highest spiritual equilibrium. This is the kind of mind or life which nothing surpasses. It's free of everything. It's above everything. Nothing can create any problems or dukkha for it. This mind with supreme equilibrium. Now we're above the power and influence of the things that people call luck, fortune, fate, um, astrology, the planets, um, holy sacred things. We don't, we don't really know what they're talking about, but people like to talk about these things having an influence over our lives. 
But now with Atamayata, one is above the influence of all these things that go by names like fate, luck, the zodiac, astrology, horoscopes, and all those kind of things. So we thank you very much for listening very attentively and carefully. Please give careful consideration to what, why, the question, why Dhamma? And then the question, how Dhamma? And then the benefits that we receive from the study, practice, and realization of Dhamma. Thank you once again for being very good listeners. And we hope that you receive all the possible benefits from Dhamma.